This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, lovers of liberty, and welcome to the Liberty and Law Podcast. This is Jeff Teichert, your host, and I have a fascinating topic for us today, and that is the Wilkie versus Robbins case that was before the United States Supreme Court uh, and decided uh, back in 2007 and how it, it portends ominous things from the modern regulatory state. Before I go into the Robbins case specifically, though, let me talk about uh, an experience I had when I was part of a business and trade delegation uh, to China. Uh, and it was a delegation made up mostly of Utah business leaders. And I remember uh, one day, one night while I was on that trip, I was listening to TV uh, before going to bed and there was Marriott CNN. And I don't know if if it was called Marriott CNN, because the only place you can see it is at the Marriott, but I think it probably was. Anyway, there was somebody that was <clears throat> giving a, a little interview about a book he had written. And I, I regret that I don't remember the name of it or of the author, but he said basically the new dictatorship is not uh, a, a nation where people just disappear in the middle of the night anymore. Uh, that that is the way that uh, 20th century dictatorship was. But he says, now they just send out the tax man or the fire marshal every day to do inspections, to do audits. And they just uh, harass you and harass you and harass you until you're completely out of business. And I did find this article in the Atlantic, uh, which says, what happened in Hungary since 2010 offers an example and a blueprint for would-be strongmen. Hungary is a member of state of the European Union and a signatory of the European Convention on Human Rights. It has elections and uncensored internet, yet Hungary is ceasing to be a free country. The transition has been nonviolent, often not even very dramatic. Opponents of the regime are not murdered or imprisoned, although many are harassed with building inspections and tax audits. If they work for the government or for a company susceptible to government pressure, they risk their jobs by speaking out. And so it's kind of the, a similar thing as the model I told you about. It's funny, the day after uh, I saw that program, my the, the leader of our delegation who grew up in Hong Kong but has done a lot of business in China uh, is now an American citizen, uh, but still does a lot of business in China, <clears throat> told us when we went to these meetings with business leaders, there was always a government regulator there, at least one. And, uh, and I noted that from the beginning, but he said, you cannot ignore the government officials that attend these meetings. And he warned us in the, you know, in the most strong terms, if those people don't like you, and they don't want your business to succeed for whatever reason, 
They will send the tax man out every day. They will send the fire marshal out every day. And yeah, I mean, basically the same thing I just heard on the program the night before. And he said he had personally uh, been run out of town in three large Chinese cities exactly for this reason, getting crosswise with government regulators. Now, having set the table for that, I will also, by way of disclosure, say that in the Frank Robbins case, although I wasn't involved in it to a great degree, I, I did work on it helping others in the firm. Uh, I My law firm was in Wyoming, was Frank Robbins' attorney, uh, primary attorneys. And I did little research projects and you know wrote a brief before the Interior Board of Land Appeals. But Frank Robbins' case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And being as aware of it as I was, because it was in our firm, uh, the Bud Fallon Law Office, I thought uh, this would be an interesting topic to speak about. And I'll try to keep it as simple as I can so that uh, I don't lose the audience. But the previous owner of a ranch that uh, Frank Robbins bought in Wyoming uh, had granted the United States government an easement to use and maintain a road running through, uh, through his ranch to federal lands. And uh, in return, for a right-of-way to maintain a section of road that was running across federal land to otherwise isolated parts of the ranch. Many people don't know this, but in the West, the federal government owns most of the land. And uh, that goes back to a history that I'll talk about on another podcast sometime. Uh, but if, just uh, accept it for this point that Frank Robbins' Wyoming guest ranch was a patchwork of land parcels uh, of intermingled tracts, some of them belonging to private owners, some to the state of Wyoming, and some to the national government. And that is typical for ranches throughout uh, the West, okay? And when Robbins bought the ranch, uh, he took title free of the easement uh, that the government, that, he, that his predecessor had granted the government because of something we know as the bona fide purchaser rule. And that just means that a bona fide purchaser for value uh, who buys property for, for money uh, takes that property free and clear of any encumbrances that he is unaware of and has no notice of. Well, the government had forgotten to record this easement, so it expired when Frank Robbins bought the ranch because he didn't know about it. Now, upon learning that the easement was never recorded, a Bureau of Land Management official demanded that Robbins uh, regrant the easement, and Robbins refused. Uh, they negotiated some, but the negotiations broke down, and the government began a pattern of harassing Frank Robbins. Now, this, this really was uh, a very unbelievable course of events in America. Uh, Robbins uh, was harassed and, um, and, and very much uh, intimidated over a period of time. I'm 
going to quote some of the language from an opinion, from the uh, majority opinion uh, filed by Justice Souter. And uh, he said that the, the opinion notes the fact that BLM official Joseph Vessels repeatedly told Frank Robbins, the federal government does not negotiate. And that caused talks to break down, obviously. Uh, and Robbins sort of says that any one of these harassment events were relatively small. And he might have, you know, just taken it on the chin. But, but it, in the aggregate, it was death by a thousand cuts. There was just a huge, massive campaign against him. Um, in the summer of 1994, uh, Vessels wrote to Robbins asking for permission to survey his land uh, in the area of the desired easement, and Robbins refused, and he said, no, first of all, uh, let's agree on the easement, and then you can go do the survey. Well, Vessels went ahead and did it anyway and boasted to Robbins about it. Well, the property hadn't been damaged. I mean, his property rights had been because the because Vessels um, <clears throat> had trespassed on his land without permission. But he didn't file a, a trespass complaint because it was the 17-cent lawsuit, no real damage done. Uh, but mutual animosity was growing. Uh, there was a BLM employee named Edward Parodi who was told by his supervisors to look closer and investigate harder for possible trespasses and other permit violations. It, it was a direct campaign against Robbins. Parodi also heard colleagues make disparaging remarks about Robbins behind closed doors, calling him the rich SOB from Alabama who got the ranch. And Parodi was convinced that the Bureau had been mistreating Robbins and described his conduct as its conduct as reaching a volcanic point in his own decision to actually resign from the BLM. Uh, Vessels and his supervisor, Charles Wilkie, continued to demand the easement from Robbins under threat of canceling uh, the, the reciprocal maintenance right-of-way that Nelson, Robbins' predecessor, had negotiated. And when Robbins wouldn't budge, the, the BLM canceled the right-of-way. And by BLM, I don't mean Black Lives Matter. I mean Bureau of Land Management. And he cited Robbins' refusal to grant the desired easement and failure to pay the rental fee. Uh, later on, BLM employee Gene Leone, who was a defendant in the case, fielded a call from a neighbor regarding an incident between her and Robbins and he encouraged uh, Penoyer, uh, the neighbor, to, to uh, call the sheriff and have Re Robbins charged with trespass. So they were actually encouraging Robbins' neighbors, private parties, to, to uh, call the sheriff on Robbins. And Leone uh, told Edward Perotti, I think I finally got a way to get Robbins' permits and get him out of business. This is literally a government agency wanting to get a particular citizen put out of business. Uh, in October 95, the Bureau claimed various permit violations and charged his ranch's five-year uh, special recreation use permit, uh, changed it 
and made it subject to annual renewal, which is much more burdensome. According to Frank Robbins, losing that five-year permit disrupted his guests in his ranching business, and it created a lot of uncertainty about permission to conduct cattle drives and make plans in advance and so on. Well, then in 1996, uh, <clears throat> the, the government brought administrative charges against Robbins for trespass and other land use violations. Robbins said that some were false, but the whole course of it was unfairly selective enforcement. And he took all of them to be an effort to retaliate for refusing the Bureau's continuing demands for the easement uh, without paying him for it. And in the spring of 1997, uh, there was an important road uh, that was on the only way to reach portions of, of Robbins Ranch uh, in a certain area and became impassable. And the Bureau simply refused to, to fix it. And so Robbins went out and fixed the road himself and sent the BLM a bill. Well, they, instead of paying the bill, they fined him for trespass and offered to settle the charge and entertain an application to renew the old maintenance right-of-way. And instead, Robbins appealed to the Interior Board of Land Appeals, and they went ahead and upheld the fine. And even though Robbins said the Bureau was trying to blackmail him. Now, I want you to really listen to this next part. In 97, Terrell Shryack, who was also a BLM employee, um, <clears throat> entered Robbins' property claiming the terms of a fence easement as authority. Robbins looked at it and accused Shryack of unlawful entry, quote, tore up the written easement and ordered her off his property. <clears throat> Later that month, after a meeting about trespass issues with bureau officials, Michael Miller, a bureau law enforcement officer, questioned Robbins without advance notice and without an attorney present about the incident. The upshot was a charge with two counts of knowingly and forcibly impeding and interfering with a federal employee in violation of federal law, a crime with a penalty of up to one year in prison. Now, this came to trial. The jury acquitted Robbins in December of, of that year after deliberating for less than half an hour. And according to a news story, the jurors, quote, were appalled at the actions of the government. And one said that, quote, Robbins could not have been railroaded any worse if he worked for the Union Pacific. Robbins then moved for attorney fees under the Hyde Amendment uh, arguing that his possession was vexatious, frivolous, or in bad faith. And the trial judge denied that. And then Robbins brought the lawsuit that ultimately went before the United States Supreme Court, although, as the Supreme Court notes, there was further vexation to come. So in 99, the year after the lawsuit was filed, uh, the, the BLM denied Robbins' special recreation and use permit based on an accumulation of land use penalties lev levied against him, which, of course, uh, they, they went out and investigated harder and scrutinized him more than anyone else in order to find him in violation. Uh, then in August, the Bureau revoked his, his grazing permit, uh, claiming that Mr. Robbins had violated its terms uh, when 
when he kept bureau officials from passing over his property to reach public lands, which, of course, he had been tried criminally for and found not guilty. Uh, Robbins appealed that violation to the Interior Board of Land Appeals, and the IBLA stayed the revocation of the permit pending resolution, and it kept Robbins in business for a few years. And, and uh, but without the special recreation use permit, Robbins wasn't able to use federal lands uh, for his, you know, recreation cattle drives and things like that. <clears throat> and uh, while he was on one of these cattle drives going only on private land, not even using federal land for it, this was in August 2000, vessels and uh, some other BLM employees were trying to catch Robbins trespassing. And uh, from a nearby hilltop, they were videotaping ranch guests during the drive, even while the guests uh, zooming in on certain guests seeking privacy to relieve themselves. And uh, of course, that was a big problem for Frank Robbins uh, and his guests and a deterrent to people coming and doing you know, going on vacation with them. Uh, incredibly, that same afternoon that they took these videos, Robin's uh, home was broken into by the BLM and left trash all, all around inside and then left without closing the gates of, of his property. Uh, the next summer, summer uh, BLM officials um, approached a, an employee of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and uh, pressured them to impound Robin's cattle. Uh, they, they told Robin, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs told Robbins about it, but didn't do anything else. Now, finally, in January 2003, think how many years this has been going on, I mean, like almost a decade. <clears throat> the tension cooled to, at some level and, and Robbins and the BLM entered a settlement agreement that would establish a procedure for an informal resolution of future grazing disputes, um, putting a stay on 16 pending administrative appeals to ultimately, with a view to ultimately dismissing those. And, and that was providing that Robbins did not violate certain BLM regulations for a two year period. However, in January, 2004, the BLM violated that agreement and began formal trespass proceedings against Robbins and unilaterally voided the settlement agreement. And Robbins tried to enforce the agreement in federal court, but was denied. And uh, this time when Robbins sued, it, uh, the Court of Appeals affirmed after dealing with another order uh, uh, to, uh, for jurisdiction to consider a, an appeal on the denial of qualified immunity. What that qualified immunity, of course, means that government officials can't be held personally liable for uh, uh, things that they do while, while they're in service of the government. And the court held that Robbins had clearly established a right to be free from retaliation by the government for exercising his Fifth Amendment right to exclude the government from his own private property. Well, how is it pri even private property if the government can just come walking in whenever they want? Uh, without a search warrant, without 
uh, paying for an easement or anything. And the, the, the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, said that Robbins could go forward with making a RICO claim um, because that's a racketeering claim because government employees who, quote, engage in lawful actions with an intent to extort a right-of-way from a landowner rather than an intent to merely carry out their regulatory duties are committing extortion under Wyoming law and, and within the meaning of the Hobbs Act, which is a, a federal law. The Court of Appeals rejected the, the defense based on a claim of government's legal entitlement to dispute to demand the disputed easement and said, if, it, if an official obtains property that he has lawful authority to obtain, but does so in a wrongful manner, his conduct co constitutes extortion under the Hobbs Act. And, and so this is the Court of Appeals, a federal Court of Appeals saying that the federal government, federal employees, had committed extortion against Frank Robbins, trying to bully and intimidate him into giving up his property rights. And the Supreme Court granted certiorari to review this appeal. And they held, we have also held that any freestanding damages remedy for a claimed constitutional violation has to represent a judgment about the best way to implement a constitutional guarantee. It is not an automatic entitlement, no matter what other means there may be to vindicate a protected interest. He's saying if the government tries to violate your constitutional rights, uh, you don't automatically get money damages. There might be some other remedy. Of course, in this case, you're talking about property rights where money damages are specifically provided for in the Fifth Amendment. It says that uh, the government cannot take private property for public use without just compensation, and that's exactly what they were trying to do. Well, never mind that, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, they also um, uh, looked at that... Um, in two steps. In the first place, they said there's a question about the alternative existing process for redressing the, the person's uh, rights. And uh, secondly, they wanted to refrain from having the judicial branch provide new and freestanding remedies and damages. Um, now, Here's a statement that I find a little incredible. In this factually plentiful case, assessing the significance of any alternative remedies at step one has to begin by categorizing the difficulties Robbins experienced in dealing with the Bureau. We think they can be separated into four main groups, groups of remedies. Torts or tort-like injuries inflicted upon him. That's personal injury kind of stuff, like trespass, for example. Charges brought against him, that's the criminal element, unfavorable agency actions, which they want him to go to administrative tribunals for, and offensive behavior by bureau employees falling outside those three categories. And he talks ab about how, you know, vessels trespass to do the survey, and the court understands that he 
Robbins didn't sue for that because the damages weren't high enough to justify hiring an attorney and so forth. Um, now, what I want to bring across here is Robbins was saying that it's a whole series of conduct he's objecting to. It's not one little thing. It's death by a thousand cuts. And it says the charges brought against Robbins include a series of administrative claims for trespass and other land use violations, you know. And so, so there's, you know, if there's 60 of those, he's got to fight all 60 apparently in the administrative tribunal. Uh, Robbins had the opportunity to contest all of the administrative charges. He did fight some, but not all of the various land use and trespass citations, and he challenged the road repair fine as far as the IBLA, though he did not take advantage of judicial review when he lost in that tribunal. Well, I mean, he had so many different charges brought against him. And now, now this paragraph I'm about to read you verbatim from the opinion of Justice Souter is why we have juries. Listen to this. He exercised his right to jury trial on the criminal complaints, and although the rapid acquittal tended to support his charge of baseless action by the prosecution egged on by bureau employees, the federal judge who presided at the trial did not think the government's case was thin enough to justify awarding attorney fees, and Robin's appeal from that decision was late. Okay. Look. I mean, the, the reason we have juries is so that citizens are placed between the power of the state and prison time. Now, the judge, the, the, the judge and this is true many cases, judges tend to think the government is always right. A lot of them are former government attorneys. Now, I'm not saying they always rule for the government, but what I am saying, and, and this is true of some well-known conservative justices like Justice Scalia, they spent a lot of time in the executive branch defending discretion of executive branch officials, and they carry those biases with them into judicial office. And in this case, I, I don't know anything about the judge in the uh, criminal case. But I want to say that the, uh, the jury saw what was being done to this guy by the government and the judge being sort of an elite didn't care. Well, we want our cases not to be judged by the boys club of the federal government. Uh, and a whole bunch of elites, we want it to be judged by our fellow citizens. And that's why juries matter. In this case, the jury understood what was being done to Frank Robbins. The judge was totally oblivious to it. So when people start talking about how judges and juries reach the same conclusion 90% of the time, blah, 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 don't drink the Kool-Aid. Juries matter a lot. All right. <clears throat> Now, I want to suggest again that the Supreme Court's decision ignores the single unified pattern of conduct 
by the BLM against Frank Robbins, and that makes the citizen vulnerable to death by a thousand cuts, sending the tax man out every day, sending the fire marshal out every day. Quote, the more conventional agency action included the 1995 cancellation of the right-of-way in Robbins' favor, originally given in return for the unrecorded easement for the government's benefit, the 1995 decision to reduce the special recreation use permit from five years to one, the termination of the special recreation use permit in 1999, and the revocation of the grazing permit that same year. Each time the Bureau claimed that Robbins was at fault, and for each claim, administrative review was available subject to ultimate judicial review under the Administrative Procedures Act. Robbins took no appeal from the 1995 decisions stopped after losing an IBLA appeal of the Special Recreation Use Permit denial and obtained a stay from the Interior Board of Land Appeals for the Bureau's revocation of the grazing permit. Okay, why did Robbins not appeal every single one of these individual grazing decisions or permit decisions or trespass allegations? Well, there are about a thousand of them, right? I mean, it, it, there, there, it, there is a point at which if you keep prosecuting somebody for stuff, you're going to destroy them financially at having to constantly defend themselves, even if your charges are completely baseless, or even if it is a, a deliberate uh, effort to put that person out of business and destroy their life, right? Mis subjecting people to multiple processes and ruinous litigation is part of what the Declaration of Independence uh, outlines justifying our uh, separation from the British crown. All right, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, one of the things the, that Jefferson wrote, uh, charging the king with all kinds of oppressive behavior, one of the things was for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Well, if you've taken someone away from their home and taken them all the way up to Canada uh, and tried them for crimes they don't understand and maritime offenses and things like that, uh, you know, you're assen you've essentially uh, destroyed them whether or not they're found guilty. Uh, there, there are also... Uh, cases in uh, in that early period where the judges were actually paid money uh, for a, a portion of the fines that were levied against the people. So what do you think they did? They levied as many as they could because they had a vested interest in doing so. All right. Now, do you remember when I said uh, a few minutes ago that the BLM uh, zoomed in on on people's um, on ranch guests uh, while they were relieving themselves out on the trail. Here's what the Supreme Court said about that: the videotaping of ranch guests during the 2000 drive, while no doubt thoroughly irritating and bad for business, may not have been unlawful 
depending, among other things, upon the location on public or private land of the people photographed. And they cite for that the tort of exclusion or seclusion. Well, how much more can you violate someone's privacy than taking a picture of them while they are involved in relieving themselves? Even if a tort was committed, it is unclear whether Robbins, rather than his guests, would be the proper plaintiff or whether the tort should be chargeable against the government. Well, who was the action levied against? Who was the government really after? It wasn't the guests. It was Frank Robbins. In sum, here, here's a little summary from the Supreme Court. Robbins has an administrative and ultimately a judicial process for vindicating virtually all of his complaints. He suffered no charges of wrongdoing on his own part without an opportunity to defend himself and in the case of the criminal charges to recoup the consequent expense, though a judge found his claim wanting. And a final agency action, as in canceling permits, for example, was open to administrative and judicial review. This state of the law gives Robbins no intuitively meritorious case for recognizing a new constitutional cause of action, but neither does it plainly answer no to the question whether he should have it. Like the combination of public and private land ownership around the ranch, the forums of defense and redress open to Robbins are a patchwork an assemblage of state and federal and administrative and judicial benches applying regulations, statutes, and common law rules. Well, when you're, sub th this is me talking now, when you're subjecting a person to persecution by the government through a variety of different agencies and court tribunals and administrative tribunals, a patchwork as they put it, it's death by a thousand cuts, right? It is harassing them with government money to such a degree that it's going to destroy them whether they're found guilty of anything ever or not. Now, here's another statement by the Supreme Court that I think should go the other way, but it says, but Robin's argument for a remedy that looks at the course of dealing as a whole, not simply as so many individual incidents, has the force of the metaphor Robin invokes, death by a thousand cuts. It is one thing to be threatened with the loss of grazing rights or to be prosecuted or to have one's lodge broken into, but something else to be subjected to in this combination over a period of six years by a series of public officials bent on making his life difficult. Agency appeals, lawsuits, and criminal defense take money, and endless battling depletes the spirit along with the purse. The whole here is greater than the sum of its parts. Whoa. Now, to me, when we're talking about due process of law and fairness and justice and okay, this ought to end, that finding by the Supreme Court should end the argument. Unfortunately, they find the other way. This is their next sentence. On the other side of the ledger, there is a difficulty in defining a workable cause of action. Well, that's what we pay you guys for, right? 
he, the, the, Justice Souter further goes on. I can hardly read this. It's so maddening. But unlike punishing someone for speaking out against the government, trying to induce someone to grant an easement for public use is a perfectly legitimate purpose. As a landowner, the government may have, and in this instance does have, a valid interest in getting access to neighboring lands. Okay, now look, the government may or may not have a legitimate interest in gaining access to their public lands, but does that mean they get to do it without paying any compensation to the landowner and bullying them into it? Robin's challenge, this is the Supreme Court again, Robin's challenge, therefore, is not to object, not to the object the government seeks to achieve, and for the most part, his argument is not that the means the government used were necessarily illegitimate. Now, that isn't true. Robbins was saying the means they used were illegitimate. That's simply disingenuous. Continuing, rather, he says the defendant simply demanded too much and went too far. But as soon as Robbins' claim is framed this way, the line drawing difficulties it creates are immediately apparent. A too much kind of liability standard if standard at all, can never be as reliable a guide to conduct and to any subsequent liability as a what-for standard, and that reason counts against recognizing freestanding liability in a case like this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, the road to hell is paved with overzealous pursuit of good intentions. And that's exactly, and I'm not saying the government's intentions were good in this case. They, the Supreme Court doesn't claim that. They only claim that they were legitimate. But in a republic, how we do things is, is very much uh, as important, if not more important, than what we do. And here, literally, we've got the Supreme Court saying the ends justify the means, and maybe they went a little too far in doing it, but how far is too far? We can't really draw a line. Therefore, we're, we're not going to give Robbins any redress. Completely failed the private citizen in this case. Completely failed them. Now, <clears throat> again, here's Justice Souter um, ju justifying the actions of the new dictatorship. It is true that the government is no ordinary landowner. Here he's acknowledging it. With its immense economic power, its role as trustee for the public, its right to cater to particular segments of the public, like the recreational users who would take advantage of the right of way to get to remote tracts, and its wide discretion to bring enforcement actions. <clears throat> but in many ways, the government deals with its neighbors as one owner among the rest, albeit a powerful one. Each may seek the benefits from the others, and each may refuse to deal with the others by insisting on valuable consideration for anything in return. And as a potential contracting party, each neighbor is entitled to drive a hard bargain, as even Robbins acknowledges. That, after all, is what Robbins did by flatly refusing to regrant the easement without further recompense. And that is what the defendant employees did on behalf of the government. 
so long as they had authority to withhold or withdraw permission to use government lands and to enforce the trespass and land use rules as the IBLA confirmed they did have, at least most of the time, they were within their rights to make it plain that Robin's willingness to give the easement would determine how complacent, compliant they would be about his trespasses on public land when they had discretion to enforce the law to the letter. You have got to be kidding me. So, so in plain English, the Supreme Court is saying the government can marshal all of its massive force to drive a hard bargain against a private citizen because they want to get him to relinquish some of his property rights and pay him zero for it. That's not driving a hard bargain. That's tyranny. Come on, folks. Of course, folks, I know you're not the ones doing it, but come on, Justice Souter. Now, uh, he, he says further on, exercising any governmental authority affecting the value or enjoyment of property interests would fall within the Bivens regime. That's the case that says that uh, some constitutional violations give rise to claims for damages, for money damages. And across this enormous swath of potential litigation would cover the difficulty of devising a too much standard that could guide an employee's conduct and a judicial fact finder's conclusion. The point here is not to deny that government employees sometimes overreach, for of course they do, and they may have done so here if all the allegations are true. The point is the reasonable fear that a general Bivens cure would be worse than the disease. In other words, for the government to recognize that the that this guy's constitutional rights had been threatened and give him money damages for it would open the floodgates to a whole bunch of other people wanting the same and <laughs> there was also the question of the federal government using extortion against robbins and Robbins points out a U.S. Supreme Court case which says that extortion does not depend on having a direct benefit conferred on the person who obtains the property. An example of that would be a government official saying to a private person, well, I'm not going to approve your building permit unless I get a kickback. Okay, that's classic extortion. But it says he, meaning Robbins, infers that Congress could not have meant to prohibit extortionate acts in the interest of private entities like unions, but ignore them when the intended beneficiary is the government. In other words, if I attempt to, if I'm a union executive and I try to extort a benefit from a private party, not on my own behalf, but on behalf of the union I represent, then that is also considered extortion. And Frank Robbins argued that Congress couldn't have meant to prohibit extortion on behalf of unions, but ignore that kind of conduct when the beneficiary is the government. This is what Justice Souter said. Can you believe this? In America, a Supreme Court justice writes this, but Congress could very well have meant just that. 
Drawing the line between private and public beneficiaries prevents suits, not just recoveries, against public officers whose jobs are to obtain property owed to the government. Unbelievable. In plain English, folks, Justice Souter here is saying that extortion is not okay for a union. It's not okay for any other private entity, but the government can do it. And that's what Congress intended. Justice Souter again, it is not just final judgments, but the fear of criminal charges or civil claims for treble damages that could well take the starch out of regulators who are supposed to bargain and press demands vigorously on behalf of the government and the public. So he's saying if people are allowed to bring criminal charges or civil claims uh, against government officials for misconduct, to, to bring those charges against them personally, that might take the starch out of regulators. Well, you know what, folks? I want to take the starch out of regulators. I want regulators to be humble with power. I don't want regulators to be unfireable. I don't want them a feeling they can just, you know, having enough starch to oppress the rights of individuals in our country. The Constitution was designed to take the starch out of regulators. Many of our laws have been uh, designed to take the starch out of regulators. Now, I'm a conservative. I loved the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett uh, and Neil Gorsuch and, and, and most of the other Republican appointed justices of the Supreme Court. In this case, I agree with Justice Ginsburg, which I don't often do. But she gets this exactly right. And I'm going to read you uh, a couple of paragraphs from her opinion. Bureau of Land Management officials in Wyoming made a careless error. They failed to record an easement obtained for the United States along a stretch of land on privately owned High Island Ranch. Plaintiff respondent Frank Robbins purchased the ranch knowing nothing about the easement granted by the prior owner. Under Wyoming law, as I have explained on this broadcast, Robbins took title to the land free of the easement. BLM officials, realizing their mistake, demanded from Robbins an easement for which they did not propose to pay to replace the one they carelessly lost. Their demand, one of them told Robbins, was non-negotiable. Robbins was directed to provide the easement or else. When he declined to follow that instruction, the BLM officials mounted a seven-year campaign of relentless harassment and intimidation to force Robbins to give in. They refused to maintain the road, providing him access to the ranch, trespassed on Robbins' property, brought unfounded criminal charges against him, canceled his special recreation use permit and grazing privileges, interfered with his business operations, and invaded the privacy of his ranch guests on cattle drives. Robbins commenced this lawsuit to end the incessant harassment and intimidation he endured. He asserted that the Fifth Amendment's takings clause forbids government action calculated to acquire private property coercively and cost-free. He further urged that federal officials dishonor their constitutional obligation when they act in retaliation for the property owner's resistance to an uncompensated taking of their property. The 
The court recognizes that the remedy to which the government would confine Robbins, a discrete challenge to each offending action as it occurs, is inadequate. A remedy so limited, and this is the death by a thousand cuts that I'm talking about. The court recognizes that the remedy to which the government would confine Robbins, and that remedy meaning a discrete challenge to each offending action, each one of the thousand offending actions, as it occurs is inadequate. A remedy so limited would expose Robbins' business to, quote, death by a thousand cuts. Nevertheless, the court rejects this claim for it fears the consequences. Allowing Robbins to pursue this suit, the court maintains, would open the floodgates to a host of unworthy suits in every sphere of legitimate governmental action affecting property interests. But this is no ordinary case of hard bargaining or bureaucratic arrogance. Robbins charged vindictive action to extract property for him without paying a fair price. He complains of a course of conduct animated by an illegitimate desire to get him. That factor is sufficient to minimize the court's concern. Bravo, Justice Ginsburg. Taking Robbins' allegations as true, as the court must at this stage of the litigation, the case presents this question, does the Fifth Amendment provide an effective check on federal officers who abuse their regulatory powers by harassing and punishing property owners who refuse to surrender their property to the United States without fair compensation? The answer should be a resounding yes. Again, bravo, Justice Ginsburg. Exactly nailed it. On point. Justice Ginsburg says, and think about how we began this broadcast talking about the new dictatorship. BLM's seven-year campaign of harassment had a devastating impact on Robbins' business. Robbins testified that in a typical summer, the High Island Ranch would accommodate 120 guests spread across six cattle drives. As a result of BLM's harassment in 2003, Robbins was able to organize only one cattle drive with 21 guests. In addition, Robbins reports that he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in costs and attorney fees seeking to fend off BLM. Now, I can tell you folks, I've represented ranchers a lot in my career. Most of those guys don't have the money Frank Robbins had. He, he made his money in the flooring business in Alabama. He didn't make it ranching. Most ranchers simply would have been put out of business and quietly gone away into the night without, uh, without um, you know, no, anyone ever really knowing. Justice Ginsburg continues, The very essence of civil, civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. And that's from no other, no other case than Marbury versus Madison, the very first Supreme Court case setting forth the principle of judicial review. Probably the most important case in our history. And it says, the court drew upon that venerable principle in holding that a victim of a Fourth Amendment violation by federal officers has a claim for relief in the form of money damages. Historically, the court observed, quote, damages have been regarded as the ordinary remedy for invasion of personal interests and liberty. That's from the Bivens case. So 
Justice Ginsburg is saying that if your personal liberty has been violated under the Constitution, including the Fifth Amendment, uh, the ordinary remedy is money damages. And I would say that's particularly true in the case of the Fifth Amendment, which requires just compensation for a taking by a federal officer. Now, in Davis versus Passman, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case, the court allowed a suit seeking money damages for employment discrimination, which isn't even in the Constitution, in violation, but it, but it, but it tied it to the Constitution saying, that the employment discrimination was in violation of the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment. And it says, quote, unless constitutional rights are to become merely precatory, the court stated, litigants who allege that their own constitutional rights have been violated and who at the same time have no effective means other than the judiciary to enforce these rights must be able to invoke the existing jurisdiction of the courts for protection. The Supreme Court simply throws up its hands and says, well, Frank Robbins had a remedy for each of these thousand individual little cuts and should have been able to just object to each of them in a separate little action. Uh, yeah, if he's got $5 million in 30 years, maybe, as they continue to mount up. But in this case, there was specific intent on the part of the government to harass and intimidate this guy and bring so many different charges against him and so many different violations that he couldn't possibly deal with it all and would be forced out of business. And you know what? They did it. They got him. And you know who was, who was complicit in the government scheme? Well, Justice David Souter, the author of the opinion, in this Supreme Court case, and a whole bunch of other justices that I admire. I want to tell you, my reason for starting this podcast is I don't want to see liberty die in the United States. I don't want to see government bureaucrats be able to subject an individual to death by a thousand cuts because they fight city hall or because they speak out against certain government policies. And throughout my legal career of 26 years, I have seen it over and over again where regulators that have not had the starch taken out of them by any means are becoming little Napoleons, and anytime somebody fights City Hall or speaks out or challenges their right to make any decision that they may make, that person gets the book thrown at them. They have to go by the book on every little thing. And in this case, the Supreme Court admits that that happened to Frank Robbins, but they say, well, that's, they had the ability to do that and drive a hard bargain. Ask yourself, friends, do you want to live in China? Because with this kind of decision, that's where we're headed. And I'm just, I'm just asking you to wake up and pay attention. 
I think we still live in a free country, but decisions like this make it less free. And the growth of the administrative state and the power of bureaucrats makes it less free. All right. I know this has been a long broadcast. I hope you enjoyed it and it made sense to you. And thank you again for listening.